the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Alrighty, I welcome you back to your seats. It is time to pick up where we left off. We'll need some refreshing because it's been a few weeks, but here we are back in Romans chapter 9. So uh, you can make your way there. We'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, this infamous passage in Romans chapter 9 is a little bit difficult to understand how your sovereignty and our free will work together. And uh, we ask that the Holy Spirit is present in our hearts and here today. Christ Jesus, our Lord, we acknowledge your presence here. Where two or three gather together, you promise. You're in the midst, and so, God, we just need you apart from you. We can do nothing, uh, let alone understand these lofty truths, but we want to know the truth so that truth can set our hearts free. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So nobody likes to be misunderstood. Someone reaches the wrong conclusion about something we say or do. That happens every once in a while with us humans. But if ever anyone was truly misunderstood, I think that would be God, certainly uh, by people in the world. And yes, even among his people, sometimes we get the wrong idea about the Lord. Even though there's an abundance of information in the Bible, we would call it autobiographical because the Lord is revealing who he is. And he does that all through the scriptures. And he even gives us uh, four gospels to show us what God looks like in imprinted into flesh, poured into a human body, which of course Christ is God in human form. And so we can hold up those gospels like a four-faceted gem and just see very clearly what God is like. In fact, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And so that's an amazing statement. So we know a lot about who he is, his nature, his attributes, but still somehow we end up attributing to him things that are not worthy of him. And that's what Romans 9 is all about. Paul is going to try to help us avoid doing that. And when we think of God's sovereignty, that he's in control and he's in charge, but we also have free will, uh, sometimes we'll end up uh, thinking things that are incorrect about him and judging him to be a way that he certainly is not. He is magnificent 
and he is merciful, he is kind and loving, and a lot of things happen, a lot of people have choices to make. And so Romans 9 is really about how God is predestining while men are choosing and how they work together. The point of Romans 9 is know his heart. If you know his heart, then you will never have any anxiety about what God is up to in your heart and life. So how did this all start? It started a chapter ago in Romans chapter 8 when he was telling us, no worries, rest assured, you have eternal security because you are chosen predestined in him. And if he's predestined you, if he's called you, he's already justified you and glorified you. You're chosen, you're good. So at the end of that chapter eight, most famous chapter eight, he says, if God is for you, if God has chosen you, elected you, and that's where you get the doctrine of election from because that's the word that's used. If God has checked your box in eternity past, then what do you have to worry about? Chapter 9 says, well, are you wondering about the Old Testament chosen people? They seem to have rejected the Messiah. So if they were chosen and yet they've rejected Jesus and 99% of the people who love God are non-Jews, how does that work? And so he says, let's use Israel as an example of how God works in the doctrine of election. And if you say election, predestination, God's sovereignty, providence, salvation, you're all kind of hitting around the same basic concept. And so uh, chapter 9 starts out with a question, and you need a little bit of this setup and refresher for ch the, the rest of chapter 9, which we pick up at verse 14 to make any sense. So I've got to build a little bit here. He starts out by saying Israel's apparent rejection of their Messiah as the chosen people uh, is not a failure on God's part. And so he goes to explain it, and he says, let's talk about this being chosen. And he says, first of all, not all of Israel is Israel. So he's saying, yeah, God made some arrangements with Israel. The true Israel is everyone who believes like Father Abraham believed. Abraham, the progenitor of the Jewish race, believed God and was set right with him. So everybody who is related to Abraham by doing what Abraham did, was trusting God by faith, is a child of Abraham. And so he's just saying, like the church, God has made promises to the church, capital C. But not every church member is going to heaven because he made promises to the church. Not all the church is the church, is the idea here. So don't look at uh, Jewish people who have rejected the Messiah as a failure on God's part. They're just not all true Jews. A true Jew is one inwardly as well as outwardly, as nationally, I should say. And so that was the first thing. And then he straightened out two things, which brings us to where we pick up, all right? So he said, concerning God's election, number one, he doesn't save through DNA. So that was sort of the idea, just because the Jews said to him in John chapter 8, Jesus, we've got Abraham as our father, we're descendants of him, and he promised Abraham to bless his children. Done. And Jesus said, no, no, you're rejecting me. 
You have to have faith in God, you see. So it didn't come through DNA. And then his second example was election doesn't involve being good or bad. Behavior to get to heaven is totally 100% irrelevant. It has nothing good, bad, generous, kind, wicked, cruel, has nothing to do with getting to heaven. And he says, well, because it's by faith. Abraham was by faith. Whoever gets saved in Old Testament or New Testament, it has to be apart from works. It has to be on Christ's merit alone, in faith. That's how God saves. So he says, consider Jacob and Esau, twins, two Jews, right? And so this is going to bring us into verse 14. Two Jewish boys, and he says, listen, about election, God said Esau before they were born before they had any chance of doing good or or bad. God says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated or rejected. Now, the family secret, of course, is, is that God foreknew that Jacob would come to faith, and he accepted Jacob because Jacob accepted him. But he foreknew that Esau preferred to chase wild women. That's what the scriptures say about him, right? and his animal passions rather than uh, seeking the Lord. And so he rejected God. He rejected the faith. Therefore, God rejected him in his foreknowledge. And so this statement, there's what makes everybody a little bit crazy, that before somebody was born, God could say, yeah, I really like this one, this one, not so much, right? And so it gets people a little crazy, and they say, is that fair? Is that okay? Verse 14. So what shall we conclude here? Is God unjust with this whole Jacob and Esau thing? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God, and here's the kicker, has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Let's pause there, shall we? And note takers, if you're taking notes, we'll walk through uh, the chapter If you're taking notes, election is all about God being merciful. For whatever God does, it must be in keeping with who he is. And who he's revealed himself to be is a quote from when Moses is asking, show me who you are. And that quote comes from God saying, this is who I am. I am mercy, I am compassion. So whatever it may seem like to you, why did God let that happen? Or why did somebody end up missing the boat here? It has nothing to do with God wanting that to happen. He wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. That is a quote from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. So really what you have here in Romans 9 is kind of a defense of God's heart that we would be misled into thinking because he's predestinating and he's in charge and some people end up failing 
and missing out that somehow he caused that to happen. And Romans 9 is saying, God is predestinating. Men are choosing. It's working together. And we need to trust his heart because he who's merciful, kind, and loving cannot do anything wrong. So he opens up here, really, by saying, uh, you know, uh, God doesn't have an unjust bone in his body. Uh, the psalmist writes in Psalm 18, per God is perfect in all of his ways, of course. So he begins with the rhetorical thing. Uh, then what shall we say? Now, this is a reasonable uh, question or struggle that Christians might have because he includes we. The next question he says, he says, but some, uh, some of you out there might say, that's more of a dishonest inquiry that we'll talk about when it comes up. So he says, is God being unfair uh, with showing favor to Jacob and withholding it from Esau before they were born? Did God do something wrong by doing that? The Greek is very strong, and the answer is a double negative in Greek. No, not ever. No, not possible. No, out of the question. And if you're familiar with Dr. Phil, I mean, I don't watch Dr. Phil, but he's known for this, are you kidding me thing that he says. And he says it so funny, like he's so, he hears somebody say something and he goes, are you kidding me? Right? And so Paul is like, you're accusing God of doing something unjust? You're accusing God of not wanting somebody in heaven and predestining them? God, who died so that, so that everybody could be saved? Jesus had to set people straight and said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. But humans just get this thing about God. He's got the thunderbolt. He's ready to send it. And Romans chapter nine is saying, look, if people want to perish, God will bend over backwards and has already so far down that he fell over on a piece of wood that he created and was nailed to it so that they wouldn't perish. But if they want to leapfrog over the, the body, the battered, bruised, broken, bloodied body of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, if they want to jump over that into destruction, he's going to say, I'm good with that. That is just. God is just to say, I made a way for you, right? So if the sinner, like Esau, rejects the mercy and perishes, God is just. But if he shows sinner who deserves the wrath mercy, then he's merciful. Well, where's the justice in that? Well, the justice is that he will become the sins of the world, so that he's made an arrangement. It's perfectly just for him to let a murderer off the hook because Jesus became a murderer. At the end of Passion Week, that was a murderer on the cross. That was a child molester on the cross. That was a rapist on the cross. He drank that cup so that all of the aforementioned people could come to him in simple faith and say, I trust you. And he says, done. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It doesn't depend on man, but on God's mercy. And so there are two destinies. God is just on the one hand to give a guy what he wants. If after a lifetime, he won't be dissuaded. 
And he's merciful to withhold justice to a sinner and be merciful because those sins are paid for on his own body, right? So we can move a little forward. He says, listen, are you really going to think that God did something bad to Esau when he's the one who said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Let me remind you of the context of that, because he's really going to say, can you really think that this kind of God that, that I just quoted could do something to trip somebody up from getting to heaven? So let me give you the context. Israel's been led out of slavery after 400 years of torment. God came in like a mother eagle and put that nation of a million or two million people on, it, on her back. And that eagle flew out, parting a Red Sea, raining down bread so they can eat. Their sandals never wore out. He was a pillar of fire by night a cloud to shade their heads from the sun by day. And they make a stop at Mount Sinai where they're going to covenant with this God who just showed them 10 plagues and kept them safe through 10 plagues and parted a sea for them. And Moses is taking just a little bit too much time. And so what they do is they fashion out of their gold jewelry and their gold stuff that Israel, that Egypt gave them. And they crafted out of the fires golden calves, which were fertility gods for sexual immorality, and said, look, Israel, this is who took you out of slavery. This is who parted the Red Sea. And they got drunk and they had sexual immorality, and they're laughing and dancing, and Moses comes down the mountain, and he slams down those tablets, and all hell breaks loose for a couple chapters, to be quite honest with you. And then Moses, in the aftermath of that horrendous, unconscionable, backstabbing sinning, Moses says, listen, this is amazing that you're going to forgive them. I want to know who you are. Show me your glory. And this is where you're going to get the, the, the quote from Romans 9. He's pointing back to this, defending God's character. And here's what God does after that kind of sinning. He forgives them all. And then he says, now show me your glory. Just I want to know you. What's your, what, uh, what's your heart? What makes you tick, God? And the Lord said, I'll cause my goodness because that's all I have to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name. So whatever's coming is who he is. The Lord in your presence. And then he opens with this line. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he says, you cannot see my face for to see me in my glory, you'll die. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock when my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So Paul is saying, you got a problem with Esau? You think God did something bad? Like God said, hey, you know, I know you want to go to heaven, but you're not because I like Jacob better. <laughs> he says, are you kidding me? 
This is the God that we serve, is that after they were <laughs> worshiping the golden calf, after all of that, God says, I'll have mercy on whom I want, compassion on whom I want. He's talking about them. You see, this is the kind of God we're dealing with, that somebody could do that in his face, and he'll say, oh, we've got a second set of Ten Commandments. I can do them. And he gets a second set. And he says, you know what? I'm going to have compassion on who I want and mercy. That's his heart. So the question here, and, and by the way, I'll throw this in for free. It's not in my notes. <laughs> Therefore, I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. One pastor opened my eyes to that, was changed the way I ever look at that verse. What's up? You can see my back. Well, he comes out saying, the Lord, the Lord, the, I mean, later on in the vision, you, see, you hear the compassionate one, slow to anger, filled with compassion, forgiving people's sins. You can see my back. This is my glory, my back. Okay, you take Jesus who was slain from the foundation of the world. And if you see God, you have to see Jesus because he is God in a body pre-incarnated. So Jesus walks by him in glory and lets a little bit of the robe down and he sees his back in the context of, you want to know what my glory is? My glory is to lay down my life for people like that. People who would have a drunken, sorry, orgy after what I did for them. I will be take stripes on my back. You're asking me my glory? My glory is that I'll have mercy on whomever I will. And I am a compassionate God. And thank God for that. And every one of us in this room should be hooting and hollering. Amen? Yeah. All right. That was a pretty good hoot. <laughs> praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We can go back to the text. But that's just... Very, very amazing stuff. And so verse 16, catch this, because this will really heal some of your thinking. Here's a paraphrase of verse 16. So then, uh, mercy is something God is. It doesn't depend on men trying to get it or earn it. It's what God wants to give, and that's who he is. He's merciful and compassionate. So don't misunderstand this. A lot of people get this wrong. Mercy cannot be earned by man, but... Clearly, it must be received by man. So you can't desire or long to, 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 you can't be the cause of the mercy. The mercy is in God's heart. But you must act and choose and desire to have faith, as he will say in chapter 10. Now, it's been pointed out that chapter 10, if you read chapter 10 alone, it sounds like it's all up to you. If you read chapter 9 alone, it sounds like it's all up to God. If you put nine and 10 together, you get the truth. It's all up to God, and it's all up to you, and they both work together. And there's an equation for you that will simplify it totally for you. Spence the math right there. <laughs> now, God says, I would love to tell you how I can choose and you can choose, and they're mutually not exclusive of each other. I would love to show you that, but you're my children. In God's eyes, we are children. I can't tell you yet, 
But if C.S. Lewis says the first two words in heaven, your first two words will be, of course. Of course. With everything about your life and why did this and why did that and, and, and all of this and who is God and how could he hate Esau before he was even born? We'll go, oh, of course. It'll all be good. It'll all be right. It'll all be loving because that's who he is. He can do no other. Amen. So we can go back and close up those verses. And so, yeah, don't be thinking, you know, oh, it's not up to man. And here, listen, I'd just go home and take a nap if, if, if we had nothing to do. I mean, if it, if it were all just up to God and God predestined people to heaven and to hell, why bother? Why bother? And he's going to get into this and show you how ridiculous that concept is, though many people think that that's what's going on. It clearly isn't. And so he goes on to talk about what about those people like Esau and Pharaoh who don't want the mercy. Verse 17, as scripture says, that's so interesting. The scripture is cited as talking to Pharaoh when it's actually, when you go back, it's the Lord speaking to him. But scripture is, has the authority of God. And today, of course, the false teachers say, oh no, it's just a narrative. It's just a book. It's just a you know, role model kind of thing. We use it here and there, cut and paste. We like all the good, warm, fuzzy stuff and all the offensive stuff. Oh yeah, we can't have that. And so no, the scripture speaks because God speaks and the scriptures is God's voice there. And so he says there in verse 17, follow me because this gets good. To Pharaoh, he says, the scripture says, listen, I raised you up for this very purpose. Now, I think we're going to go back there. We have that Exodus 9, do we not? Very good. The Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, go tell that king and say to him, this is what the Lord says, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time, I'll send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials. By the way, we're up to plague six at this morning. And your people, right? So you may know that there's no one like me in all the earth. He really wants to get through to this guy. Now, verse 15. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the planet. Verse 16. Now, there's a time for an attitude adjustment. But I've raised you up for this very purpose to be merciful to you, to keep you alive so that you can repent. And then if you're not going to repent, then I'll do plague seven. And if you're not going to repent, I'm showing you mercy to plague eight. And if you're not going to repent, plague nine. And I'll get the glory. So there are two things going on. He is raising him up not to destroy him, but to offer him mercy. With every plague, he's saying, come on, can they go now? Do you want to repent? I mean, you're seeing miraculous things. And he says, no. So he says, okay, if you're going to play this game and keep hardening your heart, I'll help you. I'll harden it too. Now, here's the facts. Plagues one to five, guess who hardens whose heart? It says in the Bible, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Ten times. He hardens his own heart. 
This isn't Paul's point here. Paul's point is just to say God, God will prevail over rebels. He hardens his own heart 10 times. God hardens it nine times. That means he let Pharaoh win on the 10th time. So when God let somebody win, it's a Romans chapter one where he says, okay, hurdle, 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 hurdle. Go ahead. And I even think Romans one is redemptive. Even when God says, go ahead, it's chastisement that should bring the sinner back. But if they don't come back, they get the due penalty of their error. All the while, God saying in Ezekiel 33:11, I swear by myself, says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their sins and live. That's his art. He's not happy about Pharaoh saying, oh man, you think, oh yeah, you think, it sounds, I mean, he's trying to talk to this guy. Look, I could wipe you off the face of the earth, but you know what? I'm having mercy on you. I'm having mercy and compassion on you. Can we call this all off? And you would have read a different story if Judas, if Esau, if any bad guy in the Bible just said, what have I done? If Pilate would have said, you know what? My wife had a bad dream about you last night, which she did say that. And my wife told me, have nothing to do with him. Stay away. I had a bad dream. I got a bad feeling. You should have listened to your wife. And if he would have, if Pilate would have repented and said, you know what? I find no fault in you. And you know what? I, I think I'm going to bow my knee. God would have found another guy. He would have found another person who says, you know what? I don't want your mercy. I don't want you. I want to play the bad guy in the story. And God says, are you sure? 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 And when only God knows when that last I'm sure is. And then he simply says, now I will use you for my glory. And here's what the, here's Psalm. There's a Psalm that really catches this. Psalm 18 and verse 26. And here's what it says. And I think it catches it really good. You can go back to our text. To the pure, you show yourself pure. To the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. Ah, nobody's pure, so it doesn't mean moral. To the straight shooter, to somebody just humbles himself and just is a broken sinner and just says, here I am. You know, I'm shooting, I'm shooting straight with you. God shoots straight with you. But if you're a game player with God, he says, I will beat you at your own game. Oh, I've been around for a long time. You know, <laughs> I can move a million moves ahead of you on the chessboard, right? And so, and so he says, so just don't mess with me. I want to be merciful. I want you to be in heaven. I've done all that I can do. I'm arranging life to help you come. My kindness is leading you to repentance, but I will not force you. I will not force you. And so it concludes there with the yikes, 
scripture, <laughs> verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. Wow. And family secret is this. God has mercy on those who want the mercy. And God hardens those who harden themselves. That's just really what's going on here. Let's close out with this quote, and then we'll go to the next paragraph. It goes without saying, one writer said, God will never harden an unwilling party. His kindness is on a mission to help all come to repentance, and he is the Lord of compassion. He will wait an entire lifetime, waiting and wooing for a person to repent, if that's what's necessary. Each plague God sends to a pharaoh is both a judgment and consequence of sin and a mercy, an opportunity and a call from a benevolent God to repent. You see, that's the heart of the Lord. And so he says, and God hardens who he wants to harden, right? And so that picks up verse 19 now. Now, one of you out there may say, then why does God still blame us for who, who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience those objects of wrath prepared for destruction? We'll talk about that. Verse 23, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So verse 24 is really nice. He's just saying God wants everybody to be saved. He's saving and being compassionate and merciful to Jews, the chosen people. But secret is, everybody can be chosen because the invitation is to everybody there in verse 24. So let's break this down now. Now, so number two, note takers, when this is most of the sermon finishes up with this, and then there's a concluding thought. So God's electing um, uh, work in, in people's lives is all about mercy. And then number two, God's choosing doesn't in any way sway human responsibility or do away, I should say, with human responsibility. So Paul goes after another kind of objection here, doesn't he? But he doesn't say, now we might say to this, he's saying, but one of you out there somewhere, it's more of a kind of a, a whining, kind of pointing a finger at God, kind of an excuse, like nice try. You know, why, why? he can't blame me for anything because he's in charge of everything, you know, kind of attitude. So Paul has to put that attitude. In fact, he's not going to answer the question. He, he's not going to play this game because it's not a reasonable question. Of course, we're responsible to God because we have choice. If we didn't have choice, we would not be accountable to God because there's no culpability when there's no ability to be anything else. So of course, and he's going to get to that, 
But he just doesn't like somebody saying, well, you're saying God's in charge of everything. He's in control. So you know what? What's judgment day for? So he's saying, number one, you need an attitude change immediately. <laughs> and then he's going to give a hypothetical. He's not even going to answer the question. He's going, what if? All right, so let's talk about that. So there, there's this a premise that's faulty. You know, if God is running the show, why does he still blame us, big meanie that he is? And that's the attitude. If he's showing mercy to whoever he wants and he's hardening others who he wants to harden, how can he hold us accountable? And so the faulty understanding, of course, is, is that... Um, you know, there is no choice that God is predestinating, predestinating everybody even to hell. And he says, though, well, how is that possible? God holds us accountable because we do have choice. And so now, instead of answering the question right away, as I said, he's going to point out the ridiculousness of bringing up something that puts God in a bad light. Okay, so he's going to talk about that. He says, whatever God does is right and good and loving, and that it's just uh, not subject to man's approval or disapproval. So we're diving in here. So he says, um, who are you, O man, <clears throat> to sass back God? That's what the word means. To get in God's face about something, to have a beef with God. Now, it's one thing to have a struggle with God and need some answers from a humble reverent heart. He's all for that. Mary gets something she has to struggle with. You're going to have a son. He's going to be the Messiah. Well, how, how's that possible? I, I, I believe you, but I just want, I'm in awe. I want to know since I'm a virgin, I want to know how that's going to work. And so there's grace given her and an answer. But Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, he gets to, he's in the temple doing his duty there to Luke chapter one. And, and an angel appears to him and says, even though you guys are old and your wife couldn't have a baby, your wife's gonna conceive and have a son. And he says, we're so old, that's impossible. Prove it kind of thing. Well, now that's a problem. All right, so, so the angel says, well, number one, I'm an angel talking to you. So I, I thought that was enough and that I stand in the presence of God. I'm an archangel and I've been sent to talk to you personally. And you can tell that I'm an angel, not a normal human being. And, and so therefore, since you have such a bad attitude, Zach, <laughs> you won't be talking much for nine months. And then he goes out of the temple. They're like, what, what took you so long? He's like, hmm, 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 hmm. Right, because God doesn't like it when the, the pot, the clay goes, hey, you know, what do you think? What do you mean? I'm going to have a baby. Well, it's impossible. You, uh, you know, no, no. So, so if this question came from a right heart, he doesn't have a problem with it. This is somebody who says, you know, you made me this way. So you can't condemn me. You made me this way. Oh, really? Well, you can't help your feelings. And you can't help your attractions. But you can help what you act on. 
Because we all have feelings and we're all broken and we all have prompts that if we obeyed the prompts, we'd all be not obeying God. So this is just one facet of it. And so he's really saying it's inappropriate for the created thing uh, to to, uh, kind of squawk at its maker. One writer said, it's pretty funny, I hope I can find it. The air you use to voice your complaint to God is on loan from the one you're criticizing. (laughs) I thought that was good. And so let me show you the picture. He's just going to say, <clears throat> okay, about your attitude. Listen, should the pot say to the potter, a little mouth open up here and start to say, hey, what do you think you're doing? What are you making here? You know what? I, I don't want, I want to be taller. I want to be thinner in this case. It's a little short and fat. <laughs> you know, where's the hair? Come on, there's the hair. <laughs> What was that? Look, and there's a million ways we do it, too. He says, this guy really should watch his attitude with the hands with the sharp instrument. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. Right. And it's not that God wants us to be afraid of him. He says, call me Papa God and come into the throne room. He tore the, the curtain in half and said, come on in here. He may be Abba Daddy, but he's not daddy-o, amen? It, there's, there's a difference. And so he says, you really... <clears throat> now, now, this is where you're, everything's going to change. So listen. So verse 21, he says, let's talk about the potter's right over that piece of clay. Now, can he make royal china for Buckingham Palace out of the same lump? He goes, okay, we're going to make something for the palace here. And now we're going to make some dishes for everyday use in the kitchen, okay? Only do that out of the same lump. Notice, he did not make anything for destruction. He made them for household use, his household. God has a household. And he says, some will serve in this kind of capacity, more significantly, maybe, perhaps, and some will serve in more ordinary ways but not for the trash, not for destruction. It doesn't say he made one, and listen to me, it does not say that he made one lump, he made somebody for heaven, and the other he for destruction in the garbage bin, which Jesus, by the way, calls hell Gehenna, which means the garbage dump. He didn't create Pharaoh. Now he's going to call Pharaoh, an ordinary dish, because here's his hypothesis now in verse 22. Here's a way to think about it. God's got everyday dishes, okay? Pharaoh. And you say, everyday dishes? Wouldn't he be the royal china? No, you would never know who Pharaoh was unless he messed with the royal china, God's chosen people. And so the only reason he's significant is because of the Bible and the scriptures, and so he's an everyday dish. Okay, so far so good. And that now look at verse 22, which will change everything the way some people think. He bore with great patience the object of destruction. Okay, in the end, he's going to end up destroying himself. And that, he, that God, verse 22, that God bore with great patience and implies 100% he was waiting 
and working toward repentance in his life. And all those who are going to perish, he bears with great patience. That doesn't imply somebody who said, I sent him there. That implies somebody who said, please, please don't, please don't, please don't, please don't. I died for you. I died for you. Please stop. Please stop. Please turn. Please turn. That's what it implies. He bore with great patience. Let that burn in your head when you start thinking unworthy thoughts of God. You know, he did it like he saw from the beginning, so he predestined him to hell. What is that? That's crazy. He bore with great patience, Esau. Esau, really, for a bowl of lentils, really, for some sexual immorality, really? You're going to trade your birthright, heaven, for your appetites? Bearing with great patience exonerates God from any harm because he wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. 2 Peter 3.9, God does not will that any perish, but all come to repentance. Once you have that in place, then you know anybody who misses the boat is on them. It's not God's heart. He made two items of household use. And then he goes down to that everyday dish being prepared for destruction by who? Oh, let me, uh, Paul already cleared this up in his earlier chapter, chapter two. Who's responsible for preparing who for destruction? Uh, Romans two, Spence. Talking to unbelievers, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment right judgment will be revealed against you. Who's preparing that plate for the trash? The plate, according to Romans 2. God does not prepare anybody <laughs> for wrath or for hell. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus calls hell prepared for the devil and his angels and not even prepared for man. So why would God predestine somebody to someplace he didn't even prepare for man at all? God just gets this bad rap that he just says, you know, I've already seen it all. Some are going to heaven. Some are going to hell. Done. If that's the case, we should all just go and have a big lunch right now because what does it matter? What does anything matter? But the truth of the gospel is it matters. Choice matters. Whosoever will. And God's sovereignty work together. And that's why there's a mission. That's why there's a whole point of the gospel. And so that's the hypothesis there. And he bore with great patience. Yes, we know that. And then... Uh, Now he's saying at the end of this, yep, we can go back to the text. And then he's saying, verse 23, what if he did this to benefit the glory of those he prepared for mercy? In other words, those who would respond. He's saying the demise of, the, the demise of evil and when people perish, it will all work to benefit his plan and his people. And so when the world is self-destructing through the great tribulation with us out of harm's way, 
there are hallelujahs ringing in heaven because justice is being served on those who didn't want his mercy. And so God, you know, weeps in his heart, offered everybody away, but then justice will come. But mercy triumphs over justice. So the last verse leads us to the last thought. He says, wow, those objects of glory, that's us. And he's calling from not only the chosen people, but from the nations. The word Gentiles, the last word in the paragraph, it comes from the Greek word ethnos, where we get the word ethnos. <laughs> all right? It just means people outside of Israel. That's all it means. It's, it's, it's pagan people. Now, He's going to prove that in a paragraph we don't have time for. That paragraph is going to list three Old Testament scriptures, you note takers, two out of Hosea, one out of Isaiah, that just proves God is calling people from everywhere. Chosen, 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 everywhere, whosoever. And those, that's a beautiful paragraph. Then he closes with this one, and then we're done. What then shall we say? Now we're concluding as Christians that the nations who didn't pursue getting right with God, that's what that word means, they've obtained it, a righteousness, getting right with God, that comes by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, trying to get right with God, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but like they could earn it by keeping commands. And now he quotes, he takes two Old Testament scriptures and puts them together they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written in two different places, see, I lay a, in Zion, which is Jerusalem, a stone that causes the cornerstone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So let me just sum it up for you with this last slide. So the scriptures are saying, Choice matters, and the way you respond to the gospel and God and Christ will either be a stumbling to you, or it will be a firm foundation. So he takes two Old Testament scriptures about the rock. In one case, it's tripping people up, and the New Testament writers say that rock is Christ. So I can read them for you. He says, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall if you reject him. Or he's a firm foundation. That same stone is a tested stone, sturdy, a precious thing. A cornerstone is a masonry project, that first stone that gets laid in the building that is everything else is referenced by that stone. It's the most important piece. So God is called, Christ is called, the most important piece of life. And if you trip over the most important piece of life, you're, you're destroyed. If you rest upon the most important piece of life, you have a firm foundation. And interesting to me that this scripture that concludes is a holy week, a passion week scripture, that Jesus is standing in the temple and quotes this scripture and says, you know what's going on here, you Pharisees, you Sadducees? You're tripping over the stone. 
you're tripping over the capstone, the cornerstone. That's exactly what. And so I just thought, God, you are such a multitasker that be- before the began, how could you line up a scripture that gets used on Passion Week with this sermon today on the start of Passion Week? Uh, this just all oh, glory to God as usual. We can go back to the verses, and here's the final word. He says, irony of irony, Israel, who was trying to please God, that's what it says, failed because they were trying to keep kosher and keep the Sabbath and and earn their way. So the ones trying to seek God failed. The ones who weren't trying to please God found it. So the ones who weren't even trying to please God, they're the ones who found it. Why? They believed the gospel. The gospel came to them. And they simply believed. So you got 99.9% of the people of God are ethnos. There's 1 million Jews who believed. So there's 1 million Jews. That's 90 who are Christian. That's 99.9% of the people of God are Gentiles. And so he says, isn't that crazy? Israel stumbled because they're trying to work it out. And the whole earth said, we can't work it out. We're sinners. We're just going to trust and believe the gospel. And they got in. Now, Paul promises in chapter 11 that the nation's going to have a heart change and that the nation as a whole through the tribulation is going to cry out and have, a, have the faith that saves them. And they're going to lead the way and the second coming happens and all of that. So all of Israel will be saved in that regard in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. So in conclusion to this crazy profound chapter that you just finished up, look at you, Romans 9, done. Um, I'm more, apparently more happy about it than you. But <laughs> and I am happy. <laughs> just so you know, because it's a pretty meaty passage. But listen, God is for you. The people that you love who are perishing, he's at work spending all his resources and his compassionate heart to do everything in God's power to prevent a disaster in that person's life. He is not helping along anything bad to happen. He's trying to prevent something bad from happening. That's his heart. Why? Because he will have mercy. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger and wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these passages that are a little bit challenging, but do set us free in our thinking. God, by faith, we understand that you're good, you're kind, you're loving, and you're in charge. And you also expect us to choose and to live right before you. We're accountable to you. And so those two things working together, God, we just trust you. We just trust you to do good as we choose right. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.